in a, we're in a series uh, that is called um, Fusion. And the theme of this series is, is really just talking uh, through this, this concept, this biblical um, paradigm of unity. And so we began a couple of weeks ago uh, with a message on a Sunday right after. It wasn't planned this way. I'd had this message planned for weeks, but right after everything that took place in Charlottesville, uh, I had already planned to preach that Sunday on the racial unity in the body of Christ and our call to foster that and pursue it. And that message was called, Our Amens Are Not Enough. And listen, it, I, don't, I almost never do this. It's important to me that you hear that message. It's very important that the people of Newbridge uh, work through it because it was tough. It was tough to preach. I said some hard things in there, but you need to know that our hearts on this are committed. We are absolutely unwavering in our stance that Newbridge Church is going to be a reflection of our community, that we're going to be a reflection of the heart of God, that we're going to work through the nuances that make us different in our culture and our races. We're not telling us that we all have to blend into a soupy oneness and lose our individuality. What we're saying is that we have a greater identity than our pigmentation. That our identity is in who Jesus is, what he has spoken over us. And so that message was preached, and then there was another one last Wednesday night. And tonight, uh, I want you to join me in Ephesians chapter number 4. And I want to bring a message to you that is called enthusiastically, unashamedly united. And this message, above all, will really challenge us, especially in this issue, not primarily about race, but in our denominational loyalties and allegiances. If you're visiting here tonight, not only do we welcome you, but you may not know this, you're in an intentionally non-denominational church. We are a New Testament church that holds uh, strongly to three New Testament pillars. That is the authority of God's Word, the necessity of the Holy Spirit, and the unity of the body. We believe those three things characterize the first century church, and so we did not feel like we needed a, a denomination, a slice of that, to be the church that God's called us to be. And so I'm going to challenge some of our thinking here this evening, and uh, I don't mind if you get frustrated. Who can catch this? Walker, will you catch that? Thank you. Um, I don't mind if you get frustrated. I even don't mind if you get agitated. All I'm asking you is to, is, is to consider what is said tonight. Ask yourself, is it biblical? If you come to the conclusion that it's biblical, which I'm pretty convinced it will be, if you come to that conclusion, join me in further, more greatly aligning your life with the truth of God's Word. In Ephesians chapter number 4, the Apostle Paul is writing from jail from house arrest, and he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The book of Ephesians, chapter number 1, 2, and 3, are some of the most theologically rich chapters in all of the Word of God, especially in the area of our salvation. 
It goes into the deep mysteries of the sovereignty of God. It also makes very plain that each human being is responsible for what he or she decides about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it plums the, the riches of the mystery hidden from the, for, the, for ages, the reality that God would make one new entity, and that entity would be the church of Jesus Christ. And so for three solid chapters, this is what you get when, from the book of Ephesians. Doctrine, 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 and it's really good. And then when you come to chapter number four and into five and six, the rest of the book is practical application. What do we do with all of the truth we learned in the first three chapters? Well, Paul takes the next three chapters and tells us, what do we do with this? Because doctrine is never an end unto itself. Doctrine is always to be put into practice so that in the activation of that theology, there is the manifestation of God's presence, God's power, and God's will. So when we come to chapter number four, it's very interesting to me that after three chapters of solid doctrine, Paul then says, therefore, he says, in light of everything I've just said, I'm going to tell you, first of all, what you need to do. And it is noteworthy that the first thing the apostle does is he says, I want all of you to work really hard at being unified as Christians. He could have said anything. He could have said, go evangelize the world. He could have said, train people, make disciples. He could have said, pray for the power of God and the unction of the Holy Spirit and, and activate signs and wonders and miracles. Be the, be the supernatural force in the world. He could have said anything. And yet the first thing that the apostle says after giving some of the richest doctrine you'll find anywhere in the New Testament, he says, now, therefore, I want all of you to recognize the unity that you have in Jesus and I want you to live it out. And so from this message, I'm going to make a declaration, and I hope that one day, if not now, you can make it too, that I am enthusiastically and unashamedly a proponent of unity in the body of Christ. There isn't a wall that exists between Christians that I don't want to take the sledgehammer of love and truth and knock that wall down. God never intended for there to be walls between us. Walls between Christians are the result of generations of Christians all over the world not having either the will or the wisdom to work through their differences and choosing somewhere along the line, rather than work at it anymore, we'll just go over here and we'll do our own thing and you guys do your own thing over there and over the generations that has multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. If you look on Wikipedia and just do a, a search on, online in Wikipedia, Christian denominations, the statistics there, the broadest statistics say that there are some 60,000 different Christian denominations in the world. 60,000. The conservative estimates are in the thousands. If it's only the thousands, that is still heinously wrong based on what we're about to read. But if it's the 60,000, it's not only wrong, it's humiliating, it's embarrassing. And we've got to recognize that Jesus never purchased his church 
so that we would be fragmented into all of these places. So I hope I have your attention now, and let's look into the Word of God, and let's just start right where he does. If you're new to Newbridge, my method of teaching is almost every time just to go straight through the verses, teach them, and apply them. And so let's do that tonight with this statement. We are committed to unity. All Christians everywhere need to be able to amen that, but definitely here at Newbridge, we are committed to unity. The first thing that I see is that we must embrace a costly commitment to unity. Look at how Paul opens up chapter 4. He says, it is I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Why is that important? Because the apostle Paul had been serving the Lord for decades at this point. And he has now paid a very high price in his first imprisonment in Rome. He had been chastised by his fellow Jewish countrymen. He had been threatened by Gentiles. He had been beaten. He had been robbed. He had been shipwrecked. He had experienced so much sacrifice because of his commitment to the gospel. But one of the greatest things that caused him the most trouble was the fact that he wanted to win the Gentiles to Jesus. And when he began taking the gospel to the Gentiles and refused to allow the Judaizers, those were Jewish Christians that thought that Gentiles needed to become Jewish before they could become Christian. And there were a lot of different things that some of the early Jewish Christians put on the Gentiles before they could become Christians. And Paul fought that. That's the whole book of Galatians. And he fought it and he paid the price. He was persecuted to the extent that when he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, a church that he spent a couple of years founding and pastoring, and now he's in jail, and he's reminding them, they that have their freedom, he wants them to know, I am Paul, and I am under arrest because of the degree to which I believe what I'm about to say to you. Isn't it good to be around people with convictions? I mean, isn't it good to be a person of conviction? Have you thought about it lately? What are your convictions? What are you willing to forfeit your freedom for? What are you willing to potentially lay down your life for? What are you willing to forego your rights for? Because this is so crucial to you. For Paul, one of those things was the essence and the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. He did not want them to be fractured and divided and scattered in the relationships with each other. And so, like Paul, we must embrace a very costly commitment. Doing things God's way will cost you eventually. Jesus made that very plain. He, matter of fact, he put it this way. You have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. And if you don't do that, you can't be my disciple. And the idea of the cross to us, we see it in gold and jewels and we see it as jewelry and it's nice and it's pretty and it's illuminated on the wall behind me but in that day it was an instrument of torture and execution so when Jesus said you've got to pick up your cross daily it would be like us saying today hey you have to take your electric chair with you wherever you go because they may put you in it and so it was a call to costly sacrifice but not only that go further into verse one we've got to embrace a consecrated commitment and he says this I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, he says, I exhort you, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, that reads pretty eloquently. How might we say it today in our language? Paul would say to us, hey, Jeff, Amy, Newbridge, I want you to walk out what you so easily talk about. 
I want you to live publicly what you say you are convicted about privately. I want you to up your game and I want you to rise up and I want you to live at the level that I have given you through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul just turned the volume up on what he was saying because he's saying to people that could potentially be divided, he's saying, listen, I want you to walk out your faith in a manner that is worthy of the one who has called you into his kingdom. And so when I read that, I say to myself, okay, man, he's not playing around. The, 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 the obligations of the gospel are not casual for the Christian. God never set up the gospel so he could be a part of our lives. You know, we, we, we live in America and, and the kingdom of casual Christianity. And we have been in generation after generation in, in the, the churchified Bible belt that we live in. We have had the gospel presented to us almost in this way. Wow, God doesn't know what he can do without you. Please, won't you make God happy by coming to him and your reward will be in heaven forever and he'll be so pleased that you came. It's almost like if we believe in Jesus, we're helping God feel better about himself. The reality of the gospel is much more convicting to that than that. The reality of the gospel, listen, you got to hear this. The reality of the gospel is that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins that we're actually the enemies of God before we are reborn, that we're alienated from God by our wicked works, that we are sinners by nature, that we are sinners by choice, and that we are worthy of the condemnation of the holy God of heaven. Aren't you glad you came tonight? That is the reality of the gospel. And somehow we've lost that and we've turned the, the, the gospel into, well, just pray and ask Jesus into your heart and everything's going to be great for eternity. Well, the fact of the matter is when, when sinners do repent, and trust in the Lord God with all of their heart, and they turn from their wicked ways, and they, in, in, in humility, recognize they need Jesus, and they ask him to forgive them and save them, everything is sealed. He does change your life. He, he does give you heaven. But that's not the core of the gospel, or that's not the end of the gospel. Let me say it this way. The reality is, is then we are ambassadors for Christ. That we're literally the representatives of Jesus Christ, that king that we sang to tonight, that we're his representatives. And so we are called to walk it out in such a way that it reflects well on the king that we say we belong to. Now, that'll get you kind of squirming in your seat because it, it, it's not just on Sunday or Wednesday night Bible study. This is a 24-7 call on our life. And the beauty of it is this. He says, if you, if you will cooperate with me, I'll actually do it through you. My Holy Spirit will do this and walk this walk out through you, but you have to cooperate, you have to trust, you have to obey, you have to come into this thing by faith. And so it is a consecrated commitment. One of the desires of my heart as I consider Newbridge Church and our community and as we partner with other churches and see God doing some great things, I pray that we will grow in our consecration. I pray that we won't become more casual in our commitments to Jesus, just kind of quesera. I, I pray that we'll become more holy. I pray that everything from our minds to our eyes to our language to our music to our entertainment to our sexual purity, all of it just gets kind of just caught up in the wind of the Spirit 
and all the chaff is blown away and that we actually stand in, in a purity and a consecration that will invite the power of God to come through us like we've never seen it before. And if that's going to happen, it's going to be a consecrated commitment. Verse number two says that we also must embrace a conforming commitment. Now, this is where it gets difficult because now we're back to unity. If this is going to happen, look at what, how, one, one of the ingredients. Paul says we're going to walk this out. What does it look like? We're going to walk with all humility and gentleness and patience. And we're going to bear with one another in love. Let's just, let's just hunker down here for a minute. Up to this point, everything I've challenged you with has been just kind of you and Jesus, individual. And we're thinking, yeah, man, that's going to be great. Power of God, purity, holiness, consecration, anointing. Me and you, Jesus, come on, I'm your ambassador. Hallelujah. And then Jesus says, that's great. That's so good. But I want you to walk it out with him and with her and him and her and this one over here and this way. Y'all are going to do this thing together. And you say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. You don't realize I don't like them. I don't get along with them. So you may not have known that. So what I'd like to do is uh, me and you, I'm your ambassador. How about that anointing? How about that holiness? How about? And the Lord says, no, no, no. You're actually the one that has it wrong. Because when everybody on the outside of my family, my church, sees how all of y'all do this together, then they're going to know that you belong to me. Amen. He actually said that. And so now I'm going to squirm. Because how many of you know that just living out your faith with Jesus by yourself is easier than walking it out with a bunch of other people? That's why there are a lot of people that have given up on church. And they've talked themselves into thinking they can just have church in their house where it's just them and Jesus. Anybody can be a good Christian when you're alone in a room with Jesus. I mean, where's the challenge with that? He's great to get along with, amen? But you put one other person in the rooms and things can get a little wonky. So he says this. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says part of this unity and part of this walking it out means that we're going to be humble with each other. We're going to be gentle with each other. We're going to exercise patience with each other. And we're going to do it repeatedly, and that's caught up in the phrase bearing with one another. That's a continuing process. I was reading this early today, and I've had a, man, I've had a rough week. I just, relationally, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I don't walk on water. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm in a process of being sanctified, and I'm growing in my faith with Jesus. And I, starting last Sunday, I just had some, some challenges relationally. And when I was reading this today, I wasn't thinking about what the other people did wrong. When I was reading this, I was repenting. I, I literally, I mean, I don't know if that encourages you or discourages you that I had to repent before I could preach this tonight, but I'm just being honest either way because I got into some challenges this week and most of them I kept my mouth shut because I've learned to do that. But in my heart, I was not humble. I was not feeling gentle. I was not patient. And I didn't want to bear with that other person in love. And I, I just, I thought to myself, nobody in the room knows how much I'm struggling with so-and-so right now because I'm not saying anything. But Jesus hears my heart. And so I, I didn't get away with anything. What, what does this mean? Well, listen, 
when you're talking about humility, he says, with all humility, that's a lowering of your mind. That means you just go ahead and give yourself permission that you, you don't have to be first. You don't have to be best. You don't have to have the last word. You're just giving yourself permission. You're lowering your mind. You're literally teaching yourself, you know, it's actually not all about me. And that's not a lesson you learn in a minute. That's the lesson that we have to learn over and over and over again. But it's not just the lowered mind. He then says gentleness. That goes from how we think to how we act. That's where I got convicted. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole night confessing my sins to you, but I'm not naturally gentle. Is there anybody else in the room that's not naturally gentle? Yeah, a couple over there, a couple over there. Thank God. Y'all want to duke it out in the parking lot after church? No, <laughs> no it's, it's just, that's reality. Some of us weren't made soft. Some of us were born to fight. And yet, and, and, and literally, if we can turn that into a kingdom pursuit under the submission, under the yoke of the Holy Spirit, that fighting nature will allow us to take ground for the king. But when it's not under the yoke of Jesus, it becomes a problem. And so, and you say, Jeff, I'm not real sure. You may be blowing this out of, out of, out of proportion. Well, isn't it interesting that the Bible has to tell us to do these things? Do you know why the Bible has to tell you to do these things? Because it's not your nature that when you're confronted, resisted, or done wrong, or when you get sideways with somebody else in the body of Christ, it's, not, it's just not human nature just to say, oh, I love you. You are awesome. Let's make it about you. The Word is given to instruct us, and the Spirit is given to empower us. So when the word is believed and the spirit is yielded to, we're actually able to say, I can't excuse myself because I'm not naturally gentle because one of the fruit, part of the fruit of the spirit is that fruit of gentleness. And so all of the sudden, I'm realizing this is not as easy as we might think. Bearing with one another in love, by the way, that, that just indicates that you got to do it all the time. Because I know nobody else in the room has ever just cut somebody off. I'm, 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 maybe the people that listen to the podcast. It's, it's the people that listen to the podcast. They've cut people. I know none of y'all ever have. But just for the podcast people, we are actually not allowed to do that. Now, there are times for physical safety, and there are times where we have to make decisions that are, are practical in nature and, and protective, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we relationally just decide that person's not worth me. And we don't bear with one another. Literally, if I'm not mistaken, I, I didn't actually look at this in the Greek, but I do believe, if I remember correctly, it's a Greek word that means hupotasso. It is hupotasso, and it, and it means to, to bear up under. And, and the way we would say it today, literally, I mean, this is actually in your Bible. If we're going to walk in a way that is worthy of the king, we're actually mandated by the king to put up with each other. That's actually in your Bible, not just here. We're at, it's Colossians chapter 3, 2. We're actually told to just put up with each other. And it's not an issue of, you know, just standing there, you know, bowed up on the inside. But it's actually that we are to bear with one another in love. And that word love, of course, is the Greek word agape, which means to, it's basically a love that always seeks the highest good of the other person. And Paul would allude to that in Philippians chapter number 2 when he said, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. And, it just, and he goes on to say, I want you to esteem the other person more important than yourself. Don't you see now why we need the Holy Spirit? I mean, who in the world could do that on a regular basis without the Holy Spirit? 
And so as we think of these things, he's talking about humility, he's talking about patience and, 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 and then love. And so automatically we're being summoned to this. Paul says, this is part of our faith. This is part of how we are enthusiastically and unashamedly united with each other. You have to get this or you will never last in unification with other believers. You'll always leave. And, and until we come to this place where we say to ourselves, I'm not allowed to bail on other believers or other people when things get difficult. I'm not allowed to walk away and go find something easier for me. That part of the glory of Jesus is seen when, when we trust him as we humble ourselves and we make ourselves more gentle. And, and we do that through the power of the Spirit. And listen, the only way you get to do it is you have to go through it in order to do it. It's easy to preach about, but I've already told you this week I've struggled with this. And I have preached this text more than once. So it's not an issue of knowing it or being able to preach it or give you the Greek on it. It's an issue of, oh, Holy Spirit, keep me off the throne of my own heart. And so we get to verse number three. I don't even know how much further we'll get uh, in this tonight. But verse number three, we have to embrace a continuing commitment. Here's the, the hinge of the whole passage for me. Paul says, he's telling them we do this as we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I'm going a little deeper in these verses tonight because there's only a handful of them. and It's not a long passage, but I, I, we have to get this. Paul is saying as we're walking out our faith, as we are walking in a way that is worthy of Jesus and worthy of the calling placed upon our lives, he says, I want you to be eager for unity. He'll say more about it in a minute, but he's ultimately saying, don't just see this as a decent option. You can take it or leave it. Paul says, I want you to be eager for it. I want you to be zealous for it. In other words, he's saying, don't leave it in your pocket. Take it out of your pocket and keep it in front of your eyes. This is important. He uses the word there, it's translated in, in the ESV. I preach out of the English Standard Version. And it's translated there, maintain. In other versions, it's keep or guard. And it's literally a Greek word that means to obey, to guard, to observe. It indicates a surrounding and a protecting. It is a strong word. As a matter of fact, it's used at times in the Greek language to describe those that kept the law. Do you remember how as God was raising up the nation of Israel and he gave them the law through Moses and that they were to keep the law with all that was in them? And then when you get to the time of, of, of Jesus' day and the Orthodox Hebrews of that day, they would keep the law and keep the law and keep the law down to the dividing of their herbs to tithe on, measuring a, a tenth of their dill. And they would tithe on that because they were zealous for the law. And, and what Paul is saying here is he's using that same word and he's indicating this. To the degree that the Jews obsessed over the law of Moses and did everything they could to never violate and always keep it, Paul says, as Christians, I want us to be eager to maintain unity. Do you see how he's elevating it? I don't know, I don't know about you, and, th and this, this is something I'm extremely passionate about. Let me, let me t give you a, a, just exhale for a second. 
I'd have been saved a week. I was 24 years old before I was born again. I was saved out of a lifestyle that was terrible. I had been sober for a week because I had been saved for a week after drinking myself and, and partying for 10 years straight from age 14 to age 24. And Jesus saved me and delivered me from drugs and alcohol in an instant. He did that. I can take no credit for He did it. It was instantaneous. It was supernatural. Boom, it was gone. And so automatically I, I was... I was free. I hadn't been free in my entire life, but now I was not only spiritually free, I was free from the ravages and the bondages of drugs and alcohol. And, and so I just wanted to live life. And one of the things I did is I, I, I had a friend who had gotten saved just a few months before me. His name was Ronnie. And Ronnie had heard I got saved. And he said, hey, man, come to my church's softball league. And I said, let's do this. And so I had been to church one time since I had gotten saved. It had only been a week. And I sat down on the bench, and they were part of a Pentecostal church. I had been saved, and I, the guy that led me to Christ was a Baptist, and so he took me to a Baptist church. So I sat down. I didn't know anything about Baptists or Pentecostals or Lutherans, Presbyterians, Catholics. I didn't know anything. I just knew I was really happy I wasn't a drunk anymore and that I, was gonna, I, I had a relationship with God. So as I sat there... Ronnie's brother was asking me, he's like, hey, man, I heard you got saved. I was like, yeah, man, I got saved about a week ago. He's like, awesome, man, you ought to come to our church. I said, well, I'm actually going to a church right down the street from my house. He goes, yeah, what church? I said, well, it's called Meadow Baptist Church. And you would have thought, man, I had fungus coming out of my ears or something. He's like, Baptist? Baptist? I was like, yeah. I felt like I needed to apologize. I thought I had cursed. But what I found out in that moment, one week into my walk with Jesus, I found out that there's some really intense feelings about one flavor of Christianity towards the other flavor. And I'm not picking on the Pentecostal guy. When I got into the Baptist church, I found out that street goes both ways. But it broke my heart. I wasn't even saved a week before I found out that Christians do one thing really well. They fight. So now we're coming at this, and Paul's saying, Jeff, what you saw that first week in your salvation, don't ever give yourself to that spirit because the Word of God says, you be zealous to fight for unity. And he says it is not just unity, it's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um. When we're told here in verse number three to be eager to maintain it, we're recognizing something that unity requires of us in the body of Christ, non-stop hard work. You have to fight hard to experience the unity of peace. Isn't that ironic? You actually have to fight for peace. You have to fight for unity. It doesn't mean we fight our ch each other. I'm going to tell you who you fight. You fight you. It is a fight against our flesh, our pride, our desire to be vindicated, our desire to have our rights, our desire to be known as, as the one who's got it together. We, we don't like being challenged by things that are different than us. And so it's much easier to declare those things inferior or wrong or unworthy of our investigation or time or consideration. We'll just say, y'all be over there in the corner of wrongness, and I'm going to sit over here in rightness. And now that may be a little extreme, but maybe it isn't. 
Maybe that is actually sometimes our heartbeat. This word peace here. Does anybody know a very common word in the scriptures translated to peace, into peace? Does anybody know what that word might be? It's from the Hebrew language. Shalom. Very good. Shalom. This isn't that word. This is actually a different word. It's irene. And it's a word, from, we get the name Irene from it, and it's a word that is different than shalom. Shalom indicates a wholeness or, or completeness. This piece is talking specifically about relational peace. And so verse number three is teaching us this. Jeff, you have the assignment from your king to be really zealous about working hard and fighting long to guard and keep and protect the unity that the Holy Spirit is fostering, and you want to, you want to um, keep it in the bond of peace. It means chain it to yourself, the fetter of peace, the bond of peace. So all of a sudden, everything starts getting some kingdom light on it. Because how many of us have sat through enough syrupy sermons that basically just say, let's just try harder to get along? And it's, it's like a cute little pat on the head, like when our kids are little and we just said, quit arguing with your sister, quit fighting with your brother. Now listen, we want to be proud of you, so you guys shape up and y'all act right, and we, we patronize our kids, and we just kind of, this is not that. This is God saying, I summons my children, I summon my children, to work very diligently at refusing to let anything break that unity that my son died for. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, ooh, I need to really slow down and think about what I think and think about what I say and think about what I do and think about my relationships. And so as we get past, we're still in verse number three. I don't know how far we'll get, but are you all with me? Okay, this is challenging, but... Y'all are Wednesday night crowd, man. Y'all can handle this stuff. Verse number four, we are not only committed to unity, we are connected in unity. This is where it gets a little easier. This, it's it's kind of easy from this point for, uh, through, through the rest of it. We need to reacquire this lost concept. I'm just going to give you an opportunity to believe your Bible here. The Bible says this over all of the ages. There is one body. There's one body. There is one body, the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. The church of Jesus, the redeemed, the forgiven, the saved, whatever you want to call them. The church is the body of Christ. We are the manifestation of Jesus in the world, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ living in us, Christ living uh, through us, Christ demonstrating his heart, his plan, his offer, his provision to the world through the church. And there's only one church. There is only one church, which makes all the more staggering those statistics I shared with you earlier that some estimates say there are 60,000 denominations. And let me, let me pull the curtain behind what denominationalism is. Denominations ultimately uh, manifest because a group of people finally said, we got it right, they don't have it right, we got it right, therefore let's be us. 
to the exclusion of them. And that has happened over the centuries, perhaps 60,000 different times. Jesus says, well, if it wasn't so sad, it would be cute because I've already said there's only one church. There's only one church. Now, we do run into some issues. What do we do about heresy? What do we do about essential doctrines that muddy the waters and dilute the message of Jesus or distort the message of Jesus? Are we supposed to compromise core doctrines for the sake of hand-holding in the body of Christ? No, that's not what I'm saying here. But I'm going to tell you, most denominations are not distinct because of core doctrines. They're distinct because of peripheral issues that a group of Christians couldn't figure out and work out, so they bailed out. Oh, that was actually good. Somebody tweet that. (laughs) Or or at least text it to me. I don't think I can say it again, man. I don't know what it was, but it felt right. Um, I'll get it. We'll edit that. I will get that one. The, the, The point being is this. Jesus says there's one church. Think about that when you ride up and down the road. You see the Baptists and the Wesleyans and the Holiness Pentecostals and the Catholics. And you see the, the, did I say the Presbyterians already? I'm going down the road here. You've got the Southern Baptists. You've got the Independent Baptists. You've got their, by the way, do a study on that. Find out, listen, I can say this. I, I, was, I was saved under the leadership of a Southern Baptist. I was a Um, baptized in an independent Baptist church, ordained in an independent Baptist church, married in an independent Baptist church, uh, served as a pastor of an independent Baptist church until two years ago. And and so I've got a little bit of right to say it's a staggering thing just to see how many different types of Baptists there are. So we don't even have, we don't just have denominations. We've got sub, 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 sub denominations. And Jesus says, yeah, you're all wrong. There's one church. There's one church. We see all of this stuff. By the way, how many churches are there going to be in glory? Just one. one. So what in the world are we doing down here? What are we doing? Now, now I understand the argument. The argument is, well, this thing is so far spiraled out of control, Jeff. I mean, we're never, we're, we're, we're never going to be able to have, you know, just one church again. Well, I'll, I'll slightly adjust that. We actually will have that. Because we actually only have that now. We're just not recognizing it. But, but when all the blinders are taken away and all the junk is dropped, and when Jesus takes us home, I, I wonder if there's apologies in heaven where we're going to have to look at people and say, I'm sorry, I didn't even think y'all were saved in that church down there. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I wonder if that's going to happen. I, I probably won't, but I mean, I, I think we ought we to start humbling our hearts now. The reality is, is that it takes a lot of work to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace when we know we're going to have disagreements. But can you find anywhere in the New Testament where we're commanded never to disagree? It's not, com- it's not commanded. We're taught what to do when we do disagree. And we're not doing the best job of it. We live in the Bible Belt, and so, man... There's more churches than there are restaurants. I mean, it's ridiculous. So the convenience of just packing your bags and leaving and taking your ball and going home, it's, it's so easy. And yet what Jesus sees is, is not just us moving our letter or finding a place that does the music we like. 
because, you know, that's in the scriptures. Thou shalt leave your church if the music is not your style. I mean, <laughs> I mean we've all heard the horror stories about why people leave churches. And um, Paul's sitting in prison, and he's saying, Jesus wants you all to love each other enough to really get along and work it out. So, I mean, it's sobering, right? I like what King David said in Psalm 119.63. I am a companion of all of them who fear you, God, and those who keep your precepts. King David's standard for fellowship was they must have the fear of the Lord, which was the Old Testament way of saying a right standing with God, the fear of the Lord, and they had to honor God's word. Keep thy precepts. King David said, I can be a companion with anybody that is saved and will honor what God says. And a lot of people say, well, Jeff, what if we disagree in, in, with, about what God's word says? Well, we need to understand this. this is, let, me, let me just read this because I don't want to get this wrong. There's going to be issues that divide us. When I say divide us, they're going to, we're going to disagree over them. Those have always been there. The guy writing the letter, by the way, stopped ministering with his best friend named Barnabas. Do you remember that in Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas just said, man, this argument, is we're just, you're going to go your way, I'm going to go my way. And I think Paul regretted that later when he wrote 2 Timothy. He, he's, he's, he, he wrote and he said, hey, can, can you tell John Mark, bring him with you. He's the one that they, Paul and Barnabas split over because John Mark quit a missionary trip. And Paul just said, that guy ain't coming back on my team. And it caused such a division that Paul, the, the writer of this letter, had an experience in his life where he just quit ministering with Barnabas because they couldn't work it out. But later on in Paul's life, he's, he said, matter of fact, he said it in Colossians too. He talked about John Mark being, being profitable and, and he said it in, in first, uh, Second Timothy too. Um, I just want you to remember this. We're actually not supposed to be building more walls. We're really not. You're actually allowed to disagree with people without, without having to renounce them. Just because you walk in fellowship with somebody doesn't mean you endorse everything about their life. So they, they actually get to be wrong about some things and, and, and not have to have you abandon them, walk away. You actually get to be wrong about some things on occasion and have the expectation that it won't sever the relationship. You know, there are things that we disagree on as Christians. Some people say you got to be dunked under the water. Some people say it's fine to be sprinkled with the water. But nowhere can I find any kind of license in Scripture to say um, chastise and condemn one another because of the difference of how the water gets on you. Do I have convictions about that? Yeah, I believe you ought to be submerged in water. Do I hang out with, with Presbyterians that don't submerge? Yeah. I have no problem with that. Why? Oh, because I've just been trained by the Word of God not to build walls, but actually to build bridges. And, and to say, I'm not looking for a reason to walk away from you. I'm trying to find any place I can just get in a little closer with you. See, that's the heart of Jesus. Think about this. What if Jesus treated us the way we treat those who, with whom we disagree? Do you ever think he disagrees with you about stuff? <laughs> Some of you are saying, well, I don't know. Give me a few minutes to think about that. Well, let me answer it for you. Of course he does. Of course he does. 
He sees stuff about us all the time that's wrong, and he doesn't run from us. He actually presses in. He actually comes for us. And so I have no idea where we are, but let me give you this. The kids aren't coming back till 8.45, so I am taking a few extra minutes. If you need to leave, that's fine. No problem whatsoever. Um, We're going to rest in this common bond. It's not only one body. There's one spirit. One spirit. I don't even know if I have to really prolong this. But there's not a Baptist Holy Spirit. There's not a Presbyterian Holy Spirit or a Methodist Holy Spirit or a Lutheran Lutheran Holy Spirit. Hold on, my charismatic friends. I am one among you. There's not a charismatic Holy Spirit. There's just the Holy Spirit. And he actually lives inside every single genuinely converted Christian. Every single Christian. Paul said in Romans, Lord help me, Romans chapter 8, he said, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So every person that belongs to Christ has the Spirit. He lives within us, and there's only one. And, of course, Christians, we are really skilled at fighting over the Holy Spirit. That's one thing that divides us more than anything. Isn't it interesting that the devil has so worked over the centuries that the unifier, the Spirit, who comes and actually makes us one body, and, and look at what we've done. We've actually taken him and turned him into a doctrine that blows us apart from each other. Isn't that crazy? Say, well, Jeff, well, I disagree with them. Well, go ahead and disagree with them. You have the right to disagree with them, but you don't have the right to cause division and to walk away in lovelessness. Why? Because verse number three said you have to actually work hard and fight hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That command is there because it's hard. That's why we're commanded. And then we also rejoice in the shared hope. Here, Here it is, verse number four, end of it. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Maybe we'll end here. Maybe we'll end right here. Because, listen, the one hope, this is so good. All of us that have been saved by grace through faith, we have the, and a hope is not like some of us, you know, oh, man, I, I hope I get a promotion. I hope I can get a new car one day. I, I hope, it's not that kind of hope. It is the confident expectation that what he has promised he will deliver on. And what is that? That we're going to be rescued out of here one day and we're going to be with him. You're never going to get sick again. You're never going to get tired again. You're never going to sin again. You're never going to feel distance between you and God again. There's never going to be silence. You're going to be absolutely, comprehensively, and eternally delivered unto him and out of this world. And that's for every single Christian. That's for my Christian brother, Sos Peter, who is ministering in Kenya right now, an African who I haven't seen in four years. I, I could, when, I, when I get to heaven, I get to see Sos Peter there. I may never see him again on earth. So that, if you happen to have black skin and you're a Christian, you have the same hope that a white-skinned Christian has. Or, or a Native American or, or, or somebody in China or somebody. Listen, I know you know all of this, but we need to remember it. We need to remember it that we actually have far more in common. We have the most important thing in common. And we let the lesser things divide us. And Jesus is raising up people in this generation that say, I know what my culture says. I know what the pressures are on me. I know that they want to classify me by my my race or my gender or by my socioeconomic level or by my denominational affiliation or by where I live or what I drive or what I do for a living. I know that's what the world wants to do to cram me into their pigeonhole, but that's not my identity. My identity is I'm a daughter of God. I'm a son of God. I am redeemed. I am forgiven. I am set free by the blood of Jesus. I have eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That is my identity. 
identity. And we share that identity with everybody else who in a moment of faith has bowed their heart to the Son of God and confessed Him, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. We have that hope. Let that be what your life orbits around when it comes to your relationships in the church. Orbit around the one church, the one spirit, and the one hope of our calling. And then at the very end, and I'll just blow through these, we're consecrated through unity, the last thing. Committed to unity, connected in unity, consecrated through unity. He's given us one authority, one Lord. You don't call anybody else your Lord, right? Tell me his name. Who's the Lord? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And so we have one authority. We answer to him now and then. We're going to answer to him. I want to give a good answer. I don't want to get up there and say, Lord, I know you told us to be unified and that there was one church, but you don't know how complicated it was down there, and so we just did this. I don't want to give that answer. I want to be a guy who fights for what is best, fights for what Jesus says is true. And so we have one Lord. He's our authority. He's given us one point of solidarity. It's one faith. doesn't mean we believe all of the peripheral stuff, but ultimately what we believe about Jesus is the hub of our faith. And that unites us together. That's our point of solidarity. And so listen, (laughs) when it gets awkward and you're talking with a Christian at work or in the community and all of a sudden you realize they got a little different flavor, you don't have to build a wall. And if there's a disagreement and they try to bait you into an argument about it, just say, is Jesus the Lord of your life? And they'll say, yeah, he's the Lord of my life. What, are you doubting my salvation? You, know, you just say, you know what, I just wanted to hear that from you because he's the Lord of my life too, and that means I'm your brother or I'm your sister. And you know what, my papa, my abba, my daddy, my father has taught me not to fight with my brothers and sisters. So let's stop talking about this, and let's just try to love each other in this moment. Now, if that sounds a little bit too kumbaya for you, forgive me, but it's a whole lot better than fighting. One baptism, that's our one loyalty. That baptism indicates this, that we died to self when you were laid down in that water. That's one of the reasons why I believe in submersion. But listen, I'm not picking a fight. You got sprinkled, God bless you. Amen, you did it as unto the Lord. But when the submersion, you're, you're, you're identifying with Jesus in his death. When they raise you up out of the water, you're identifying with him in his resurrection. And that baptism is an expression, a public expression of our loyalty to Jesus. And then the last thing is this. He's revealed to us our our one priority, verse 6. We have one God and Father of all. Doesn't mean of every single human being. He is the creator of all, but he's the Father uniquely of all believers, all who are his sons and daughters by faith. And when he becomes the Father of a person who believes by faith, he is over all, and he's through all, and he is in all. So he speaks of his preeminence, he's over us, his power, he's through us, and his presence, he's in us. So in a minute, when I dismiss, those of you who have received Jesus Christ as Lord, I, I don't mean this to sound casual or crass, but it's true. You're leaving here with God in you. You walked in here, Christian, with God in you. You're going to go to work. Maybe you don't like your job. That's okay. God's going with you. Why? Because he's going in you in our relationships with each other. He's in us. 
And so if he's in me and he's in that other Christian where maybe I'm having a strained relationship with, it's the same God in him that's in me. And I believe right there that's a clear signal that we can work it out. We can take care of business. So it's time to snatch off those fig leaves of denominationalism that we hide behind. Snatch them off. Doesn't mean we're, we're hostile towards denominational churches. That would undermine everything I just said. It just means this. That denomination is not sufficient to give that person identity. It's a slice of identity. When we recognize that they are in Christ and we are in Christ, and we commit on our end to love and to fight for unity. And you know what I mean when I say that? There's going to be a blessing. Psalm 133, verse number 3. You read that. Psalm 133 is all about unity, how good and how pleasant it is when the brothers dwell in unity. You get down to verse number 3, and it says this, and there is a blessing of God there for you. There's a blessing of God in unity that you can only find when you press into it.